Tonight, as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we finish that chapter, and I entitled this, To Marry or Not to Marry, That Is Not the Question. For many years, uh, people have looked at this passage of all of chapter 7, and they pretty much divided into Paul saying, well, here's the benefits of marriage, here's the benefits of not marriage, of singleness rather, and so you know, here's why pros and cons. So to marry or not to marry, that's the question. Well, that's not really the question. And especially today, we're going to see that's not his question uh, as, as he deals with singleness more. So we, we, we notice that the point today of this passage, rather than being about marriage or singleness, is really about whether you're married or single, Christ should be the foremost in your life. He should, be, he should be the priority in your life. He should be the, the one that you're living for, period. All of your joy and strength and sustenance comes from him. And that's the idea uh, of this passage. So it's good for all of us. Um, and so for the sake of context, I just want to go ahead and read this, the, all these verses, and then we'll come back and break it down a little bit tonight. Verse 25, he says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one uh, who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. As you uh, are, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Someone says, read that again. Okay, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives uh, live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. He goes on to say, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, uh, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries is his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of of God. Now, there's a lot of little chunks of stuff in there <laughs> and a lot to talk about, but let's go back at verse 25 and just kind of walk through this and uh, get, get the, the main point that Paul wants for all of us, whether married or single, 
And so verse 25, he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, um, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy or has been faithful. Now, this is interesting. In verse 10 through 16, we remember Paul talked about those who were married, right? He said, he began that section by saying, to the married I say, and he went on and, and, and gave the directions. Here he began to say to, to the, the virgin or to, to the um, betrothed, I, I suppose is how, yes, he, he uses that word betrothed. And I want to talk about that word because that word is the word parthenon, which really is the word virgin. That's what it means. And yet many translations put betrothed or engaged and they also add the word woman usually because normally virgin is woman. But virgin, I believe in this context, can simply mean the unmarried, those who have never married. Now, I know it's an old-fashioned idea, but normally a virgin is not married. That was the whole point. Uh, and virgins can be men and women, okay? That's, that's the point here. So what he's, and I also believe it's, it's what Paul's saying here is basically now concerning the unmarried, we could use that word, those who are virgins, those who are unmarried, I have no command, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, has remained unmarried myself. I think that's the idea here. I've been trustworthy. I've been faithful in this area, so I can give you godly advice in this area. So I think that's what Paul is, is addressing here. He's addressing those who are, are unmarried. But look what he says in verse 26 then. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. It's good for a person to remain unmarried in view of the present distress. And, and, and are you bound to a wife? Then don't seek to be. He goes on to say all of those things. If you're, if you're not bound, don't be bound by marriage. If you are married, don't seek to be unmarried. Why? Well, he says um, at the very end of that verse, he says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So there's some, some troubles that he talks about here. Now, what does he mean by that? Verses 29 through 31, he says this. This is what I mean. So he's going to tell us what he means. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. So mark that. The appointed time has grown very short, or the appointed time is almost here. From now on, because of that. So this is the crux of the matter, what Paul is saying. I'm talking to those who are not married, and I'm telling you, probably better not to get married right now, why? Because of the crisis that's going on. What, what crisis is he talking about? What are the crisis soon to come? And the time is very short. He goes on, because of that, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they mourn not. And those who rejoice as though they re are not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they, are, uh, they have no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away. Now, one major point we get here is that Paul believes the end is near. That's, that's how he's writing. He's writing as a passionate man telling people, look, the appointed time is close, and this present world is passing away. It's very temporary, and the end is very near. So live but don't really hang on to anything is what he's saying. I know those verses sound a little cruel. If you're married, live like you're not married. What? <laughs> you know, we hear that and think, that doesn't sound proper. If you're married, if you're a man and you're married, live like a bachelor. No, that sounds bad. And it seems like he's, he's being a little excessive here, right? If you're dealing in the world, act like you have no dealings in the world, you know? 
What's he saying here? What's he doing? Well, he's actually using hyperbole the same way Jesus used hyperbole in Luke 14, 26. Let's just get that example real quick of what Jesus, how he used hyperbole in, in that verse when he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now you talk about a hard verse. Jesus is saying, if you don't hate your mother and you don't hate your father and you don't hate yourself, then you can't be my disciple. Wow, that sounds strange. Sounds excessive, right? But it's hyperbole. Really what Christ was saying is your concern for me should be greater than your concern for anything or anyone else in the world. He's not saying hate your parents. He's just saying love me more. Love me more than anything else in this world. And if you can't be willing to turn away from anything in this life that hinders you from coming to me, then you won't come to me. We have to be willing, he goes on in the next verse to say, take up your cross and follow me. So he's talking about total sacrifice, self-sacrifice, a total willingness to, to pledge our allegiance to him and him alone. And yes, to be willing, if, if my father were to say, denounce Jesus Christ, who would I love more? If my mother says, give up the faith and, and come back to your family, who do we love more? That's what Jesus is ultimately saying there. If someone were to tell you to denounce me, you hate them in a sense and love me. You do not denounce me for the sake of anything else in this world. And I know that sounds hard, but again, this is what the call of the gospel is. Die to yourself and follow me is what Jesus says. If you're not willing to lose your life for my sake, you'll never have life. That's, that's the call of the gospel. And it's a hard call. And it, again, it's why it's only by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit working in us that anybody follows Christ, that anybody heeds that call and, and turns their back on everything in this world to follow Christ. So that's really what he's saying, and that's what Paul's saying when he says, look, the end is so near. In light of that, live like nothing really matters in this life. I mean, again, if you're married, that's, that's good, but don't hang tight to that. It's, it, I like what he goes on to say here because it's, he, he says, your concern for me is what he's saying. Your concern for Christ, rather, Paul's saying, should be greater than any other concern on earth, especially in light of the fact of his soon return. I like what Herschel York says. He says, the apostles knew and taught that Jesus had already fulfilled the ministry of his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God, now the only item left on God's agenda is the return of Christ. That's the truth, folks. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the next agenda for God on, on the calendar event, of events, right? The, the next big thing on the grand scheme is the return of Christ. And, and Paul believed that. I mean, let's look at this. Jesus said, and by the way, my first sermon ever preached about 30, whew, so many years ago, I was 18 years old, Alexandria, Kentucky. No, we were just talking about that. Um, and I, I preached this text, Matthew 24, that we're about to read. I want to read Matthew 24 as we look at what Jesus says about his return. And, and Matthew 24 is, is what the apostles would have heard, right? This is Jesus himself. And they're asking him, when all these things happen? When will, when will the end be? And in verse 36, Jesus begins by saying, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will also the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And the interesting thing about that verse is some have preached that in the sense of, well, they were partying and marrying and they were doing all this revelry. That's not the context of that verse. We, we go to weddings. I was just at a wedding, did a wedding this week. Um, we eat, we drink, right? The point there is they were going about life with no thought of Christ coming back. So, so this is why he's saying, look, the Son of Man coming is going to, to, to be such a, in such a time that you're not prepared for it. You're living life just like any other day. Then he goes on to talk about what happens when the sun does come. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. The two women will be grinding at, at mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming back. Powerful words here. Again, what do we know about this? We're not getting into too much eschatology here and talking about one view over the other. It's very, very adamant here that Jesus is saying, I'm coming back, and when I do, there's going to be separation. And, and I believe this general judgment idea, a more amillennial view, but I see historically that what, what the Bible says is when Jesus comes again, as he says here in Matthew, there'll be a great separation. And uh, he will separate the sheep from the goats. And it will happen suddenly. And if you're not prepared, if you didn't know Christ, that's it. And this is why we preach the gospel. And we, we are so adamant about that. This is why Donna cares today about this woman. People need to know the gospel because there is an eternity at stake. And the end is drawing near. And so he goes on to say, therefore, stay awake. For you don't know when the Lord will come. But know this. And here's the idea. Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Makes sense, right? If I know a thief, if a thief emailed me today and said, Greg, I'm going to rob your house tonight at 8 o'clock, I'd be there and have a few police officers with me, right, waiting for the police officer or for the thief to come and rob my house. We, the point of this is we don't know when a thief is coming because he doesn't want you to know, <laughs> right? He, that's the sneaky part of this whole thing of the coming of Christ. And it's not even so much the emphasis that we placed on it like a secret of taking away of some and some are left behind and, and some are snatched away in a secret way. No, it's the real, the real emphasis here is that we don't know when it's happening. A thief comes secretly, but the point is you don't know when he's coming. And Jesus is saying, stay awake. Because I could come at any moment, and you need to be faithfully serving me when I do. That's what he says. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's his point. That's the main point of that whole example. Now, the apostles heard that, and they believed it. That's what they preached. Because the last thing they, they, they saw Jesus do was rise from the dead. They heard the angel say, just as he's risen, he's coming again. You'll see him again. And they did, but then Christ also said these words. I'm coming back finally at the end times. Be ready. Paul believed it. Philippians 3.20, he said, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly waiting 
for Christ? I mean, I'm preaching to myself here, and I had to pray this today. Lord, give me a love and a desire to see you come. We get so caught up in this world. We get so comfortable in, in this foreign land that we're not actually looking for Christ. James believed it was soon. James 5, 7 through 8. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient about it until it receives the early rain and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's coming. It's soon. Be patient. Yes, continue serving and establish your hearts in the fact that the Lord's coming again. In Revelation, Jesus said he's coming soon. Revelation 22, verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. But you say, Greg, it's been 2,000 years. Okay, you didn't say it, but I said it for you. I know you're thinking it. You say, Greg, it's been 2,000 years. Those apostles and all of them, James and Peter and Paul, they're saying, he's coming soon, he's coming soon. 2,000 years. The skeptics say that. Peter knew you would say that. <laughs> and so in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10, let's notice what we hear from Peter. He said, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Where's the promise of his coming? For they deliberately overlook this fact. And again, this is what the skeptics do, right? They, 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 you may have people mock you about it. Oh, yeah, all right, Jesus is coming, right, right. It's been 2,000 years. Nothing's happened. But Peter goes on to answer that. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But, he goes on to say, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So again, he's saying, just as God said he created the world, he did. Look, we're in a world that's created. And, and, and we also now must take God at his word that he is going to judge this world one day. The fire is already reserved for this world and for the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved. And here it is. It's because you say, when's all this going to happen? We've been hearing about doomsday and the Lord's return ever since I was a sparkle in my mama's eye or whatever you want to say, right? But look what he says. Don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What's that mean? It means Jesus has only been back in heaven for two days. Be patient. That's what James said, be patient. <laughs> it's not been that long. Look what he goes on to say. The Lord is not slow. Here's the grace of God in all of this. 
Why is he waiting? Why has it been so long? Because the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. I love this. God is patient towards us, and he's long-suffering. And as he's writing to Christians, that's he says to you. God has been patient to you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not wishing that any should perish, it says, but that all should reach repentance. That's why there's a wait. The gospel is being preached. The sheep are hearing his voice. They're following him. And that's God's grace, is it not? That for, think about it that way. We're kind of selfish, right? Lord, where are you at? We want you to come. But for 2,000 years, he's graciously been preaching the gospel and saving souls. That's part of his plan. And not one will perish, as Jesus said in John 17. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will lose none of them, and I will present them faultless before him. So God is working his plan. It's our job to be patient, trust him, and be faithful to do what he's called us to do. Occupy till I come, right? Do what I've commanded you to do. Preach the gospel. Love people. Preach the gospel. Be faithful to me. Confess your sin. Live holy lives until I come. But I am coming. And let that drive you daily to live a life dedicated to me and not to this stinking, dying, temporary world. But the day of the Lord, he says, he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There it is again. You'll see it all through scripture. That's the analogy, a thief. We don't know when it is. And then the heavens will pass away. You see this, this chronology of this. The Lord comes, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So this is happening. The real question is, how does that affect our lives? How's that affecting us? And that's what Paul's really concerned about here. Paul wants us to be concerned about the Lord first and foremost and not the cares of this world that drag us down. And, and a lot of that happens to deal with our families. I mean, it happens, right, in, in human relationships. And Paul just being honest and saying, you know what? There is stickiness involved in marriage and singleness. So he's saying wherever you're at, you're, you're in that situation. Now, love Christ first. Let him take care of that. I love that admonition about if you're single, don't seek to be married. And that's good advice for all single people. Don't, don't seek that as though that's going to be your cure-all. That somehow, if I just get married, I'll be over this, this, this sin or I'll be, I'll be able to be a perfect person and everything will just fall into place and life will be great. That's not it. Just like people who think if I just had more money, everything would be good. If I had a better job, everything would be good. There is no quick fix in this world that makes us all right. The only thing that completes us is Christ. The only thing that truly fulfills us is Christ, and therefore the only one we should seek after to be united to is Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Not a wife or a husband. That's not what you seek first. You seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these things will be added if it's God's will. But we, we seek first him. So look at verses 32 through 34. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. I want you to be free from these anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. He does equate this. This is his, his, Paul's wording here, that our marriages, our relationship to our wife or husband is a worldly thing in comparison to our relationship with Christ. We'll talk about that in a moment. Does it mean that marriage is bad? I'm going to talk to everybody and leave it here and, and leave it your spouse. I'm not, of course, we know Paul's already said that's not the case. He loves marriage. He said, if you're married, you stay in your marriage and you fulfill each other in your marriage. It's already, already been said. We know he's not saying that. But he said, and then to the unmarried, a betrothed woman or virgin, uh, she's anxious about the things of the Lord. She's unmarried, right? That's, that's her first concern is to things of the Lord. But if, if she's married, then she's anxious about the worldly things. Now, I want to talk about the word anxiety there for a minute. Amerimnos is the Greek word that is translated anxious, but it literally is to care for something. Care, to, to, to care for something. To be concerned about something. That's what he's saying. He says, I, want you, I don't want you to be concerned about the things of this world. I want you to be concerned with Christ. We're to be concerned with the things of Christ above being concerned about the things of this world. And I mentioned how he kind of hints about this idea of human relationships are, are human versus a relationship with him is spiritual. Now, for, look, at, look at this. If we, get, if we get to verse 35, this is really the theme of, of all this section. Verse 35 is Paul's theme. This is his thesis statement. And look what he says. I say this for your own benefit. I'm saying all this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. I'm not giving you legalistic rules. But I'm saying this to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's it. And really, that's all of our job. And that's my heart as a pastor to preach. And the reason I do that is preaching God's word is the only way we're going to be sanctified. But my heart is this, that I will secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That we will all leave here saying, man, this is, this is why I exist to dedicate myself undividedly to the Lord. He is first, period. I mean, this verse goes along with things like set your affections on things above, not on things below. Reminds us that there is no greater relationship. I mean, think about this. When I said that Paul was saying, if you're concerned about pleasing your husband or your wife, that's, that detracts, could detract from your concern Christ, and I want you to be more concerned with Christ. And, and this is what we preach at weddings. If the husband loves the Lord first and foremost, and the wife loves the Lord first and foremost, each spouse will be totally taken care of. Because your hearts are going to be transformed by the grace of God in such a way that you are going to be good spouses because you love God first. But here's the key to that. This relationship, as much as we love our families, I think you hear my grandchild. Is that my grandchild? I love her. My wife, my son, you could say the same. But as much as we love our spouse, it is an earthly relationship. My relationship with Christ is eternal. 
And the scripture there, when Jesus said in Matthew that when, when they asked him, the Pharisees said, well, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Remember, they told the story about somebody who had all these wives, you know, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. Well, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, nobody. <laughs> she, she won't be married because in, in the resurrection, they're not given to marriage. There's no marriage. But we're like the angels in heaven. I don't know exactly what that means other than marriage is a temporary earthly relationship. Yes, it's here for the glory of the gospel. Paul said it's like a mystery. It points to the, the sacrificial love of Christ for his bride. But we cannot deny the fact that it is still an earthly relationship, and it's temporary. Therefore, our love, Paul's saying, our, our steadfast love must be first and foremost for Christ, our eternal bridegroom. Do you have an undevoted love for Christ? What do you say, Colossians 3, 2? Set your affections on things above, not on things below. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Deuteronomy 6, and you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. So over and over again, this is what the Bible is telling us who are God's people it's really not even an option. We are to, to first and foremost, with all of our priority and all of our energy, love Christ. Whether married or single or, or working or unemployed or rich or poor, sick or healthy, not, all of that is secondary stuff. First and foremost, we love Christ and we seek him. Why? And here again, this context is because he's coming again. This world is not going to last forever. He's coming again. Do we believe that? We believe it just like we believe the gospel by faith. We believe it just like we believe a man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, and though, even though we've not seen him, but yet we believe. And as Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So I think tonight I just want to pray, God, give me the grace to once again be reminded that you're coming again. And let me wake up with a, with a little bit of a, of, of, of a tingling in my heart. Today could be the day. Today could be the day I see my Savior face to face and I'm ushered into eternity to experience what is my inheritance for, forever. I can't even, we can't even imagine. That is the real life. This is the dress rehearsal. Do we believe that it's coming? Can we pray with John? We'll close with this. Revelation 22.20. Let this be our encouragement. Let this be our prayer. Revelation 22.20, Jesus closes by saying this, the whole book, and here's what Jesus tells John. He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. And John says, come, Lord Jesus. Let that be our heart. Let that be our prayer. Let that be what motivates our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your faithful patience towards us, that you are long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith in Christ. 
We, we, we are amazed, Father, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You sought us with your word. We heard the preaching of your word. Your Holy Spirit made it effectual to our hearts. You, you, you broke into these stony hearts that were rebellious, and you brought us home to you, your children now, adopted by your grace, bought by your blood, secured by your spirit, and given an inheritance that will never fade away. And Father, you are coming soon. Give us the grace to live like it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.